Well, this uh, is certainly an interesting time of year. It's an interesting day of the year, I think. The winter solstice, the Tuesday before Christmas, and the confluence of a lot of holidays that merge during this time. Kwanzaa and Hanukkah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so uh, it feels um, like we should invoke a little bit of uh, wonder in the talk this evening. So I'd like to start out with that, knowing this is our last uh, um, discourse on the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana or feelings, <clears throat> feelings being the pleasant, unpleasant or neutrality of our, the tone that's imparted uh, with a, uh, the, the tone that accompanies an experience and imparts a whole relationship for the individual toward that experience. But I want to back up just a little bit before we get into that aspect of tonight's talk and just uh, speak a little bit about the cosmos, if I could. <laughs> uh, and the enormous uh, explosion of and uh, expansion of this universe where I think they've discovered now that the stars the number of stars that we thought were in the universe have somehow sometimes uh, increased sevenfold so something like 300 times 10 to the 23rd something like septillion 300 septillion does that mean anything to you? <laughs> means nothing to me. <laughs> a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> but what I uh, appreciate so much uh, in terms of a Dharma understanding is that this universe is expanding outward, creating itself, creating the space it moves into from its own expanse. So it's creating the space that it's expanding into which is itself a wondrous event. But each moment is a part of that expansion into something beyond what has ever been. So first of all, we have to realize that our place in the universe is central in the sense that we're, all points of the universe are essentially the center point of the universe. And so that all of us are equally as uh, central to the expansion as all points within this space are. And that we are expanding out into something new and vast, something that has never occurred before, something that, is, uh, that has never been. Uh, and it's a wild adventure of wonder, really, when you start sensing that this expansion involves us. We're also within that expansion, and we are moving out. As Ajahn Chah says, ultimately, you are merely observing the act of creation. Gives you a different sense of perspective, doesn't it, in things, in this wondrous of times of year when we uh, begin to acknowledge uh, what a consciousness can evolve into. And we begin to see that our consciousness is a part of that expanding consciousness, universal consciousness. And question would come up for anyone that could see that, even objectively, is that how can we claim possession of anything? How can we claim we possess something when it's constantly moving, expanding outward to something that it has never been, never could possibly be conceived? and moving into uh, areas that it has not known before. Or, I mean, it's, it's clear that we could, uh, we could see something, we could touch it, but how could we possess it? How is that possible? That you could hold fast to something that was uh, 
moving right in front of your eyes, out of your reach. And perhaps a, a different question is, how could we ever fixate ourselves within that expansion? How could we ever hold ourselves to be true in one moment, everlastingly so? How could we ever claim a reference for ourselves that was a fixation in time and place, when time and place are all relatively moving and expanding outward in this journey of wonder? You might think that the only way we could adequately enter this mix and have any relationship to it would be to ask questions about it would be to stay in the state of wonder that a question imposes, even as the expanse moved into wonder. And I love that fact because, in fact, a seat, a Dharma seat, really does include that sense of exploration, that sense of questioning, of inquiry, of looking, never fixating a response, never determining exactly what is, but always moving, always expanding. As that question, as the poem I read tonight, very deliberately, imposes a kind of sense that the same questions have come forever in the course of the human life. And that we're just pondering the same themes, but each of us have to re-investigate re, uh, our lives into this so that we can come to that unfixed determinant as we move outward and expand with the solar systems. And so I like to think that every time we create a sense of I or possess something, we're actually doing the reverse. We're halting creativity. We're arresting what is creatively known. We're arresting the very nature of becoming itself. So uh, tonight I'd like to look at several ways that we can break up that fixation. And as the last uh, talk in this particular foundation, uh, some of this will be a review of what has already been said, but I think it looks at how we can actively, in terms of our life, use a uh, take a, a, a dharmic stance so that we can keep this thing flowing and moving and expanding and being creative and always moving outward rather than being fixated or possessing anything in, in particular. And so the first question I would pose or ask of us is how do we break up that fixation? And what we have to understand in the first response to that is we have to explore uh, what feelings can and cannot offer. We have rested our life. We have fixated our life, our dimension, our consciousness on uh, asserting feelings as where we stand, as the posture of our life, as what we have as uh, is, is the ultimate goal, as the uh, false nirvana of this dimension. We pursue them endlessly in all aspects of our life, never realizing that these are very unreliable experiences. A, a sense of pleasant or a sense of unpleasantness, an avoidance of unpleasantness, uh, really is a very tentative, shaky thing. It's part of the expanding, creative, and uh, always moving experience of the universe itself. We can arrest upon some detail of life and try to possess that moment with some duration and satisfaction, but it slips. Somebody pulls the rug out from under us. We feel shaky. We don't really understand any steadiness in it. We don't develop any ability to be comfortable, truly comfortable in it, because even as we touch the realm of comfort, that comfort is being slowly uh, withdrawn from our life. And this leaves a kind of disturbance with us, a sort of 
fear, uh, awkwardness and for some a kind of doubting that we haven't really put forth the effort necessary to make this life work. And in the way that we have been told that it can work by everyone, there's a, there's a kind of doubt in ourselves, a, a, a little falling back that says, I'm not so sure I can do this. I'm not so sure it's even worth doing, but because that's too counter to the cultural traditions, to our leadership, it feels like that might not be the wise question. Maybe it's that I can't do it. Maybe that I'm just not able. Maybe I don't have the strength to make this life work. Maybe there's something missing in me. The fallback, the default position for most of us, is a sense of doubt, is that sense of, of uh, it's me that's the problem, not life. But a few of us, a few of us who have gone through that self-brutality, and we have the reflective capacity to see as we look out that it's not working for anybody. As much as people try to establish that fact in manner and in speech, if you look, if you just scratch below the surface, you see uh, someone who's very frightful and afraid that it's not working for them either. And so some of us begin to sense that the conditions on which we have rested, the very uh, pursuit of the feeling tones that we have lived our life uh, for, must, something must be wrong with that, with that configuration, with that uh, determination. What, wh why? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't last. It doesn't give me any sense of real contentment. It gives me momentary comfort, but it doesn't give me any contentment. And if I look deeply into myself, I sense what I really want is contentment. I want to be able to relax. I want to be able to have a repose with life. A repose with life. But if we get, it's, it's a little scary to ask these questions, so what happens to most of us is that we speed up. We keep our uh, RPMs revved, and we move through life so quickly that we, that we don't bother to look up and ask these fundamental and ancient questions about life. We just want to kind of get through it before we ask it, and then maybe on our deathbed we'll have a moment or two of, of reflection. And so one of the ways that uh, we have sort of, uh, in spirituality, brought forth a counter-universe, a counter-dimension, uh, are through words or intonations that seem to indicate a kind of contentment, a kind of ease, a sort of resting place that uh, can be uh, outside of this pursuit and chasing of feelings. One of those words that I think is most often used in this tradition is the word equanimity. Uh, the word doesn't slide off my tongue very easily because if I had a word that I could erase from the spiritual vocabulary, it would be that one. And perhaps love. I'm taking it on tonight. <laughs> So why would I say that? Why would I say that? Because they are essentially misunderstood. Think how love is misunderstood. Think what it means in terms of romanticism and attachment, in terms of some ideal state. And because of that, it's pursued endlessly at the expense of its relevance, at the expense of its authentic and realized nature. And so too, equanimity has the same quality. It is invited as a word into our vocabulary and used by many people as a pursuit. I want to become equanimous. Ah, where is this state of equanimity? Please help me find equanimity, as if it were a hiding place or a safe harbor 
from experience, some place that the mind could go and not have to feel feelings, not have to be within this dimension in which we have begun to understand that the turbulence of resting upon any feelings will ultimately be unsatisfactory. And so we look for an alternative dimension, an alternative state called equanimity. What would that mean, equanimity? Does it mean a prolongation of a neutral feeling to us? That doesn't sound so neutral, does it? To have kind of a, like a flat line of feeling? So what is it that we think this word means? Or is equanimity the state of not feeling? Ah, now we're getting close, because that's what, that's what I'm hoping. That I never have to feel anything. That I never have to go through emotional uh, turmoil or undulations at all. That there, there can be this place that's feelingless. Now, do you really want that? Is that what you would like for your life? I mean, think, ask yourself that question. Do you want to be unemotional? Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds dead, like a floating log to me. And I'm looking for life. I think that this practice should take us into life. It should invigorate life. It should be an abiding in life. It should be vital. It should be immersed within. And therefore, I'm not looking for something to take me out because I'm having a hard time emotionally or to give me some kind of detachment or disinterest or disassociation, all these Ds, or disengagement. Right? Because the closest the self can come to equanimity is emotionally detached. So that you're having emotion, but you're like at the other end of, a, of the binoculars, right? Where you're just, where the reverse direction, of, and everything seems so small, so distant, and you're, and you're just sitting there like, you know, a zero point when everything else... That's not equanimity. That's not equanimity. And we can find those places in the mind. That's why it's so, such a scary word, is that people go in with the intention to be unfeeling, and they will find an unfeeling state. You can find that. You can find that. I found it. In fact, when I was a child, my mother had particular moments of anger, and she would... Uh, take a yardstick and start just yelling and screaming. And the one place I could go inside, I found it very quickly, was I could go way, way back in there. And it would all happen. It was, it was like looking a mile away. And it wasn't even happening to me. And I could just feel this sense of safety, but absolute uninvolvement with what it was going outside. And I almost, I mean, it became so um, satisfactory. I, at sometimes I didn't want to come out. And I could form that advantaged distance, uh, not just to outbursts by my mother, but also any time that situations got bad. Now, for those of you who are psychologically sophisticated, that's called disassociation. I was losing contact. Every once in a while, I run into a, a yogi, a student like yourselves, who are doing the same thing with their life. And I, 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 just, I, I, just, I just want to take their shoulders and say, listen, you're going the wrong way, you know. This is not helpful. This is not an embrace of life. This is not an abiding of life. And, but, it, but it feels uh, so serene in there, so distant, that... Uh, why would I want to come out? Why would I want to come out and join all of this turbulence, rejoin it? It, it feels like it, that would be going backward instead of, rather than forward. But if you look at what detachment and disinterest and disengagement and disassociation is, it's aversion. It's fear. It's 
the fear of pain and suffering in our life. It's wanting to get away and just go to find some neutral point. And that is not, never will be, and cannot ever lead us forward in the spiritual, into the spiritual. In fact, we can become you know, hospitalized from that kind of, it can go into a catatonic state, which I guess would be the extreme of that, where you don't come out at all anymore. So you can find those places in your mind. You can discover them. You can discover them. We better get this one right, this equanimity. We better know what we're talking about. We better know where, where we are going on this because it will work against you. Every time you sense a state could be beneficial, there is an intention that accompanies that uh, claim. And that attention, intention within us starts working toward that result. You want to find it. And so then you will start looking intrapsychically for that repose, that place where you are not troubled, where you are distant. And equanimity, because it's been used so loosely, so irresponsibly, will be some goal that we set ourselves up to move forward within. So that's not going to break fixation. That's just going to be a further fixation if we go in that direction. We're trying to break fixation. We're trying to join the universe's expanse. We're trying to stay active as the center of the universe, which I mentioned again, everyone is. It seems impossible that all things could be the center, but in fact, that's the nature of the universe. Everything in it is the center. And so as the center of the universe, we are asked to join it, not shrink back, not, not to have a safe harbor from it, but to join it, to join this movement, to join this waterfall effect, a cascading effect of life and time and, and movement and acceleration and expanse and growing out of ourselves to become something that we know not what we are. Not to shrink back in terms of our mind, remembering what we have been, bringing what we have been forward, and then lock-stepping one step forward from what we have been, which is the way most of us live our life. But to move out like this, like we're standing at the bow of the boat, not the stern, like the Titanic. The, right? <laughs> <laughs> DiCaprio, that's what I was saying. <laughs> Oh, so how, okay, so another way, the second, the second way that we have to break out of fixation is uh, stop projecting our feelings onto things. See, what the mistake we make is very, is very um, entrenched within our thinking. When we have an experience, when we see an object, we have a feeling about that object. It has to come. We have to have a feeling about, it's hardwired, a feeling is hardwired into an experience so that a, when an experience arises, a feeling arises with it. Now that experience can change, but there will always be an experience accompanying every experience, positive, uh, pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. Now, what we do in a very um, unconscious way is that we assert the feeling that we have that's coming up within us, this is not external to us, we then project it onto the experience we're having. So if we're seeing something, we're having an internal arrangement of what that thing is in our perception and recognition of it, and along with that perception and recognition comes a feeling, and we invite that whole thing, insert it into the object itself. So now everything has a individual identity and a feeling associated with it. Now that feeling is not in it, it's in us. Do we realize that? Just get that fact, get it down and start working with it because 
In, in fact, I would encourage you to say, it's here, not there, just as a way to reorganize our thinking around this thing. It's in here, it's not out there. Every time you start chasing something, you're chasing your feeling, you're having about that. You're having the perception, a feeling's arising with a perception, you induce that object with your perception and feeling and then chase the object. We're chasing our own tail. That's very important to understand that life doesn't itself have value outside of the mind giving it value. Because very quickly our whole world gets fractured within that assumption, very quickly. In fact, that is the nature of separation itself. If we were to recover truly what our mind does to the world, there would be no more separation. And as soon as we fracture ourselves as having an experience of the world that invites our approach or avoidance of the world, then we of course take shape and form in relationship to that experience. So we arise with the investing of a feeling into an object. And the object increases its tone and intensity depending upon how much we want it. How much we want the feeling that it seems to have. I, I find that very interesting. I hope each of us will prove that to ourselves. Remembering that this meditation what we're doing here is not an intellectual exercise. Boy, that was interesting. Gosh, just think. Feelings are outside, are inside of us and we're projecting them outside. Isn't that interesting? I think I'll write a term paper on that. No, this is an invitation. This is an invitation. All of this is an invitation to really experience that for ourselves. Let me see if that's true. He says it's so. That rose certainly looks awful nice. Coming from me? Well, where is it coming from? Does he think it's coming from the rose? How would I ever know the feeling of a rose when it's external to me? It has to be in me. Does it not? So, okay, I can feel it. So why should I chase after something that is invested, that has its uh, origin within my own psyche? Why not just remain with that feeling inside of me and just see what happens with it? But this feeling tone quickly gets projected into a whole complexity of thinking and storytelling within us. Oh, that's a rose, and I had a, used to have a rose garden when I was small, and oh, I love roses, and I can't wait till spring so I can plant, new, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just, we are, we've elaborated upon this feeling tone, wanting to encourage more of it, so we plant more roses in our mind. And now we have a rose garden of delight. Where is it? I don't know. It's in our mind, fictitiously, as a fantasy. So that same thing happens in every projection. We meet somebody and somebody frowns at us. Well, we're all set, you see, frown, unpleasant. The unpleasantness isn't coming from the person. God knows why they're frowning. But our interpretation is that it's an unpleasant projection, it's an unpleasant, and the person is deliberately frowning at me. And so suddenly our psyche, our, the way that we hold the world in terms of our own neediness shows up so that the person is frowning at me and I have done something wrong. So if there's anything in me that feels that I'm not, I'm less than uh, acceptable to myself, that part will show up when a frown is seen. A frown, oh, they're frowning at me, the unacceptable part of me, takes it in and assumes the truth of it. Now this is sure madness, absolute madness, because what happened there? A feeling tone in me was projected out onto someone. They had a facial grimace 
And then that feeling tone elaborated itself into a story in which I, of course, became the victim of the frown because I'm set up psychically to look at my own pain in relationship to other people's presentation. And so whenever you do something that activates or senses, that pain is stirred and suddenly I'm in full-blown storyline narrative with that pain. That's called living our life for most of us. We just go from one projection to another. We never question where the feeling resides or looking at the pain that holds the elaboration of that feeling as a personal experience. You see where we can get, we can get into this thing. We can break this fixation up. No matter how many years we've been alive, unless we start looking to break this solidification up, whenever someone frowns, I will have that emotional response. Has it changed for you? And so we just, we don't understand how this thing is creating itself moment after moment because we're not willing to look either at where the feelings come from because if we do, then what good is life? Why even chase it? Why pursue it if it's coming from me? Why chase it? And we don't want to come to that conclusion that life isn't worth chasing. So I'm not going to go that direction. Now, I, can't all, I could stop it also by just looking at the pain that the frown engenders. So that I, when it activates the pain in me, seeing somebody frown at me, instead of assuming the truth of that frown means something about me, I can look at what is there that concludes that I'm not worth uh, I'm not a good person to begin with. And if I could get and shake that up a little bit to look at it, then what the frown wouldn't, wouldn't entice anything. It wouldn't activate anything. But we don't do that either because to look at the pain would, for us, determine that we were what we thought we were, an unworthy, unlikable person. So I don't want to look at that. That would just confirm the narrative that I've been embracing my entire life. So I'm not going to look at that. So I don't look at the pain and I don't look at where the feeling tone is coming from. So I never get beyond that matchup. But come on, this is what we're doing together. If you're not doing this, if you're not looking at this level, you can be sure that you will die pretty much the way you're living now. Because people die in character. So this is just coming together like this weekly should stir something in us. Should stir, and what should it stir? It should stir an intention to rediscover our true relationship with life. Come what may. If it means that life isn't worth pursuing, maybe that's for the better to know that than just to pursue it endlessly as the cultural culture invites us. Maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe there's something at the other end of that. And spirituality promises something. It doesn't promise that you all be despairing and have no meaning or purpose in life. If you, it, it promises something else. But we have to end the pursuit of what our fantasies, how our fantasies direct us to be able to find that, to be able to discover that, that newness. So we have to challenge ourselves in this. We have to move out of the fixed response into the creative forces of the universe. It's waiting to take us right there. It's waiting to show us. Does it sound so unenticing, wonderless to be a part of the creative forces and juices of the universe? So uninteresting, such a barren life, why would I ever Perhaps not. So to say, not here. Or to say, um, excuse me, to say here, not there. When you're feeling something, when you fi find yourself leaning into life, when you find yourself running after it, it's here, not there. It's here. Let me feel it here. It's not out there. 
Let me feel it here. And when somebody frowns at you, okay, it's in here. The frown is being reacted to it. Let me feel what's here that reacts to the frown. The frown is nothing. The frown is neutral. It's because we have a perfect uh, merging of our neediness to get over our own inadequacy and a frown. That's the perfect storm for the meeting of, a, of the conviction of our being inadequate. Those two form and re-solidify and reinforce one another. This is an adventure. If we take it as an adventure, we can really feel the possibilities of what an active life could be. You don't have to go sit for months on end somewhere. The actual uh, evolution of life as it moves, as it's created, as the forces are moving out, and as we try to bring ourselves from the past to the present through our own fixed response, there's a rub there because the universe isn't fixating, it's moving. But we're trying to fixate its movement, and so there's going to be a rub there. And that rub is the perfect way for us to understand what we're doing to the universe, to stop and arrest it, rather than to let ourselves flow and move in accordance. See? So the question that comes out after we begin to understand that feelings are very limited in what they offer and the need to project our feelings onto everything is, is there a way, is there discovering a way so that feelings are less, that affect us less in this life? And we begin to get a sense that, you know, when we actively pursue something, that active pursuit leads to a, a kind of chaos inside of ourselves. We're thinking about what we haven't got even while a different reality is, fa we're facing a different reality. And we're constantly looking and pursuing something that is not even present in this moment. And it, that it gives us a kind of chaotic inward life. Our mental life is not in harmony with reality, it's in discord with reality because we're constantly thinking about what we want or of what we're afraid might happen as opposed to what is happening. And and that kind of mental movement all along the way creates a very active sense of me and what I need to do in order to navigate life so that it comes out in accordance to what I want it, how I want it to go. Now that state of confusion and chaos, despair, and then we invite the word equanimity in, and we think, oh, let me just have absolute freedom from this. You know, let me have that sense that I don't ever have to be invested in this particular pursuit any longer. But it's just the opposite that what is what equanimity. Equanimity is no longer needing to pursue. I've seen the end of my need to pursue these things. I understand that the feeling is coming from me, it's not in the object, and that, that when I chase the object, I don't feel satisfied by the object. I feel there's a moment of respite in which this desire has decreased or subsided, and then another desire kicks back in and I'm off running again. So there hasn't been any real satisfaction, it's just been interrupted briefly. And that what I'm looking for is a different way for this dimension of reality to be lived in which I'm not living at the expense of every feeling tone that arises. Now, when I find myself no longer moving toward or away from any experience, I also notice that I get very still inside. That it's my moving toward something, which is my wishing for it, which invites and invests a narrative within that description and has me often thinking about what my reality needs to be. But when I'm not moving, just the opposite happens. I'm no longer exclaiming or condemning anything. 
I get very quiet. I don't have, my needs are being met in a different kind of way. They're not being met through desire and fear. They're being met through the contentment that is here now. Not pursuing here and now for the fulfillment of a desire, but finding a resting place by just not moving in relationship to every object and every experience as it comes in front of my view. And I noticed that in the absence of that movement, there's also the absence of me. I'm not as predominantly here. Where do I go? If you're not invested in the form of you, you go into the awareness, the presence that holds the form. You don't lose anything. The energy that went into the determination of your image goes into the presence. You don't get erased. Your, your life force does not get erased. It just gets moved. It gets, it gets shifted from the sense of an image about me and what I need in order to be satisfied in this life to presence abiding, abiding presence in life, to abiding presence in life, and which isn't moving towards any aspect of life, but a letting its life come at it, being received, being received. No longer pushing or pulling towards every experience. Many of us have had that experience of just presence, awareness. Awareness, the now, as I'll just change metaphors, now is more than the contents, which forms the now. The contents are the sights and sounds and smells and tastes, but the now that holds all of that are not those particular sights and sounds themselves, although it holds those things, it itself is much more than that. And as long as we're not invested in the details of each experience being a payoff for me, then the forms come back into place and I can reside in the presence, the awareness that holds all those. We step out of form. That stepping out of form, that shift of identity, and the relaxation with life, as it's being abided within, is equanimity. I have gone nowhere. I've just stopped pursuing the fantasy that I hold about life. I have gone nowhere. I have found no enclave, no cave in my mind. I haven't divided or or uh, invested in an alternative reality. I'm not looking for some departure. I have just simply stopped pursuing, stopped pulling and pushing. Just rest, just rested. And I don't want to make this sound too esoteric because all of us have probably had the experience of that rest. We just don't give it the credence it deserves. And in fact, that rest, where we're not pushing and pulling that experience, that simple rest, that presence, is the foundation on which all spirituality unfolds, and which awakening can happen. In fact, that's as far as we can go. And then things happen on their own from then on. And all we've done is uncluttered our minds. We've taken ourselves off the griddle. By what? By just noticing the pain of being on the griddle. And not worrying about what it's going to look like if I get off the griddle. And how awful it will be, and how vacant, and how desert-like, and how bland, and how uninteresting life would be if I didn't pursue it. Which is a huge obstacle for most of us. We don't want a moment in which we're not engaged and intensely, intensely engaged in life, in which we're not excited about it, in which we're not entertained by it. It's produced a society that can't be alone, that can't live by itself.
And this absence of narrative becomes alluring, not in a feeling way, but in a heartfelt way. We see that as we get quieter, something gets bigger. And as we speak more and more predominantly and hold our own image within that speech, we get, something gets smaller. Larger or smaller? Well, do I want a big me and a small awareness or a lot of awareness and a small me? Well, we have to work through a lot of fear before we decide how we want this accordion to, to manage itself, don't we? And when we step into now, we step out of a thousand, thousands of years of, condition, of collective conditioning. Because this momentum of energy towards feeling is not just this generation. It's been inducted. We've been inducted into the hall of feelings. And so breaking this fixation with receptivity, with just the openness. Okay, instead of moving out and, and trying to, you know, navigate my way through life so that I can be most enjoyable, what if I just opened to whatever was in life, enjoyable or not? Now you can see, you can hear, we're already out of feelings. We've already, we've already expanded our way out of feelings. And that's, so that receptivity, that willingness to open rather than to pursue. And what happens as that openness occurs is that we see perfection. Now that's hard, I understand. You also see pain. It's, you don't get away with just seeing perfection. You also see the limitation but the sense of perception, when it's inclusive, when you see things in their rightful order, in their rightful place, you, there's a part of the consciousness that understands the perfection of that, that everything has to be that way. That there is no other way it can be. It's the universe. You can't say that star is misplaced. Then neither are you. If the star isn't, then neither are you. And when you realize that it all is perfectly placed and you feel the pain accompanying that perfection at the same time, then you can sit in the middle of that perfection and act appropriately towards unification. Siding neither with the perfection, which is I don't have to do anything, everything looks fine, why do I even have to get involved? Or towards the limitation, which is the pain and losing the perception of unity. So approaching, approaching, equi uh, approaching equanimity. How can we, how can we just, how can we, the first thing is you can practice things, uh, practice like listening is a perfect receptivity and see where it is that you block listening because that's where you're blocking equanimity. Equanimity is a parami. Paramis are qualities of awareness itself. You don't have to do something to yourself to be equanimous. You just let yourself shift identity to awareness and you'll find equanimity as part of that presence that is achieved. You don't have to try to become equanimous. You don't have to find an equanimous part of you to work with experience. That's an oxymoron. You and equanimity will never coexist. Give it up, forget it. I think it's harmful to think in that way because 
The embodiment of the person is the embodiment of resistance to life. Now, how is the embodiment of resistance to life going to cohabitate with non-resistance, which is equanimity? You don't worry about it. It's a word that should be thrown out. I, I really mean it. So that it won't confuse us. So as soon as we weigh in on how well we're doing it, we've lost. We've lost it. How's my equanimity? Not very good. <laughs> to understand how suffering is caused from feelings. And to feel the resolve to put an end to this. Put an end to this insanity and to join the universe once more. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? You see, I love Ajahn Chah. You know, the best thing, what do you say? Let me get the quote right. He said, uh, ultimately, you are merely observing the act of creation. That's meditation. That is meditation. Stay out of yourself. Stay, stay out of trying to form yourself in a certain way. Just stay out of it and just watch the creation of yourself. Receive yourself as a creative act of the universe. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.